You don't know how perfect these songs are for the word that God has for us this morning. It comes from Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Let love be genuine, hate what is evil, and hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in seal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Extend hospitality to strangers. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Know if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Word of God for us this morning. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the praise and the worship that brings us before your throne. We ask now, O Lord, that you will speak to our hearts and our minds according to your will. We ask, O Lord, that you'll open our understanding to receive this and to be blessed by it in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week, for those that weren't here, we talked about the fact that we owe everything to God because he has made us part of his family, that he has adopted us into his family through grace, that by doing so, God has made us his children. And today in, in the book of Romans, we find Paul telling us how the children of God should behave. We know that parents always have expectations for their children, right? They don't always meet the expectations, but we always have those. That's kind of a parent thing. And God has expectations of his children. He has things that he would hope for us to do and hope for us to, do, to be uh, in our lives as we go about being part of this family. And it was important for Paul, for all Christians to understand that the children of God are to be distinguished from everyone else that they are to behave differently and stand out for different reasons than those of the world. He wanted us to understand that the family of God is different than other families. And you know, as parents, we've all heard this at some point or another. If you're a parent, you've heard, but so-and-so can do it, or so-and-so can go. And what do we always say as parents? Well, you are not so-and-so's daughter or son, right? You're our child. And so it's different, right? When it's your child, it's under your rules because you're, you're the parent. 
And that's the way God is in many ways. He says, you are my children, so you belong to this family. And Paul is saying, let me tell you about God's family. Let me tell you how God's family is to behave. Years ago, you might remember that Coke came out with a slogan. It was extremely simple. It was the real thing. It was so simple, but so direct, because the claim was that if you wanted to have the genuine, real article, you went and bought a Coke. And the implication was that everything else was imitation. That everything else was trying to aspire to be Coke. But that Coke was the only real thing. Well, today we hear Paul basically telling us that our love needs to be the real thing, that it needs to be genuine, that it needs to be the thing that everybody else wants and tries to emulate, that there is other imitators out there in the world, but that the only true love is the love that comes from God, that sees beyond all the kind of things that keep us from loving in this world. That is something that you cannot emulate outside of God's love. You can't pretend to love because people can smell a fake away. When Coke got expensive and the kids were little, I remember buying off-brand soda. And I tried it on them. And it took 0.2 seconds for them to go, ew, this is not the real thing. When people experience fake love from us, they can tell right away that we don't mean it. They can tell that it's not the real thing. And when they feel that it's not the real love of God, that it's not sincere, it automatically turns them off. And we lose the opportunity to invite them into the family of God. For that reason, Paul says, our love must be genuine. And as our love is genuine, we have to hate what is evil and hold fast to what is good. And what that means is that God does not like evil. He doesn't like sin. He doesn't appreciate sin. But he still loves every sinner out there because he wants to redeem every single one of them. There is no person out there that God does not want to love into relationship and bring into the family of God. But God hates what is evil. He can't stand it. He can't stand sin. And so he wants us to leave sin behind. That's why Paul says in this family, you have to reject that which is evil. You have to put it out from you. You have to fight it. You have to continue to call it out. When you see evil, don't just pretend like it's not there. Say what it is. It's evil and it needs to go in the name of Jesus because we are the family of God. Hold on to what is good. What is good? God is good. What is good and faithful? God's love is good and faithful. You hold on to the love of God and the grace of God because that is the only way that you are able to be part of the family in the first place. But love is so important that Paul doesn't stop there. He says, I want you to love each other with mutual affection. And the word here used for love is philios. It is familiar love. He says, love each other basically like brothers and sisters that you are in Christ. You know, it doesn't matter who it is that you meet. 
If they believe in Jesus Christ, they are your brother and sister in Christ, and there's a bond there in the family of God that needs to exist. We need to be able to love our brothers and sisters in Christ no matter where they come from, what country, what language, what denomination. We need to be able to love them because they're part of the family. This mutual affection shows honor to each other. We honor each other with this love. And it says that we should outdo each other in honor. And I love kids on this because if there's anybody that can one-up you, it's a child. Child, you see two children and one of them says, here, you can have one marble. And the other one goes, well, you can have two marbles. And before you know it, they've given away the house because they're trying to outdo each other and to one-up each other. Paul was basically saying as Christians, we should outdo each other in mutual affection and in love and in respect for each other in the community of Christ. And then he goes on to say, children of God are to be ardent in spirit, not lagging in seal while serving the Lord. This sometimes is hard for us because let's face it, we get discouraged. We have times in which we feel down or we're tired or we're worn or life has hit us hard or we've had circumstances that have been difficult to overcome or we get tracked by something in our lives and we lose focus of that that straight and narrow that God wants us to be in and at those times it is easy to let that zeal begin to lag and to kind of slow down you know during this pandemic I know it was hard for a lot of people with the zeal because to have zeal while standing in front of your computer watching online service is hard right to be able to worship like you do when you're in the presence of other believers, hearing their voices, feeling this atmosphere of the Spirit of God, it's hard. But the Scripture says that we have to keep that seal. And I had to look seal up because I wanted to make sure that I did it justice. Seal is, a, is described as great energy or enthusiasm in the pursuit of a cause or an objective. God wants us to be excited about pursuing Him, excited about worshiping Him, excited about being His family, excited about expanding the kingdom of God and inviting people into the family. We have to be excited about what God is doing in the world and in our lives. God wants us to be ardent in spirit, which gives us a clue about where our zeal comes from. You know, our seal is not just emotionalism. It's not just an emotion that we have and we get all excited and then it's gone. It is an overwhelming presence of the Holy Spirit that makes us burn from the inside out with the presence of God. This is holy work that God is doing in our soul and is helping us to continue to keep our zeal even through difficult times. It comes as a gift from God who said, I'll not leave you alone. I'm sending you a counselor, the Holy Spirit, to be with you always. If we stopped there, we'd have a full message, but Paul is not done yet, is he? He goes on to give us a list of situations or conditions in which we can find ourselves and what he considers would be the appropriate Christian response as members of the family of God. Because it's important for Paul, 
for, for us to understand, Paul wants us to understand that Christians are going to face exactly the same things everybody else faces in this world. But what distinguishes us is the way we react to them and the way we face them. That what makes us different as the family of God is that we don't face those things alone, but that we face them as children of God, as part of the family. So here's the list of things he says, we as Christians, as part of the family of God, rejoice in hope. You know, hope should always fill us with joy. When you think about what God has done for you in Christ and forgiven and wiping away all your sins, if that doesn't fill you with joy, then, then you're dead. Because that is life-giving. When you think about the fact that God adopted you into the family when you didn't deserve it, that should bring you joy. When you think about the fact that God has promised you a place in eternity with him, that has to bring you joy. And the thing about joy of this kind that is based on hope is that it produces more joy. Because the minute you think about one thing that brings you joy in the Lord, it brings to mind 10 others that bring you joy. And those 10 others bring you 10 more. And before you know it, you can't count all the blessings of God because there are just too many. You can't count all the reasons to have joy because there's too many. And so the joy is continuous. There is a rejoicing that happens when we think of our salvation. Every time I think that Jesus gave himself to forgive my sins, it brings me joy that I don't have to face the throne of God alone, that I can wear the white robes of righteousness that Christ has prepared for me. The joy we will share in heaven is something we can't even imagine. There's songs written about it that we just can't imagine it. It's that, that incredible. But what about the other flip side? What about when we experience suffering and difficulties? He says, be patient in suffering. Well, I don't know about you, but when I'm suffering, patience is not the first thing that comes to mind. I usually think more like, hurry up and get it over with because I want to come out on the other side. Usually when I experience suffering, I want it to end. When I see somebody else suffering, I want it to end. I want to help. I want to make a difference. Whenever we see suffering, our reaction usually is to cringe or to, to embrace ourselves, to brace ourselves for impact because we know which suffering is difficult to deal with. Yet Paul says, as Christians, we are supposed to be patient in suffering. Why? Because Christians don't deal with suffering like everyone else. When we suffer, we are patient because we know where our help comes from. Our help comes from the Lord who made heavens and earth. We know that he who brought us to the trial will get us through the trial. Before we even begin the suffering, we know that even in suffering, God can teach us something that we need to learn. Before we face the suffering, we know that he can use our suffering to help somebody else. Before we endure the suffering, we know that God will not put more in us than we can bear. There's so much in suffering that God teaches us. Patience is one of them. 
How many of us have had to wait on the Lord for something? Anybody waited on the Lord on anything? Anybody? I mean, because I don't know about you, but my God's not a microwave God. Sometimes he takes his time, right? Sometimes the time for what he wants to do has not been completed. So we as Christians learn to be patient in suffering because we know that God has not left us even in the midst of suffering. And then we learn that as a family of God, we are our praying family. He says, persevere in prayer. Anybody got a praying family? In my family, we pray over meals. We try to pray for situations that we have. You know, with the kids, we, we would pray with them at night, every night to try to put them to bed. It was part of the DNA of the family. It wasn't something that was added on at the end. It was always part of who we wanted to be as a family, be a praying family. Paul says that if you are part of the family of God, it's in your DNA to be part of this praying family because in this family, there needs to be communication all the time. You know, Jesus taught his disciples to take time to pray, to leave everything behind, to go up in the mountain, to separate from the crowds because he understood the need for us to stay connected to the source, to God. He understood the need for refreshment in prayer. Did you know that you can be refreshed in prayer? That when you are burdened and heavy laden, you can go to the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, this is too much. Ease my burden. You can go to the Lord and pour your heart out and the Lord will be right there for you. We are a family that prays. And the prayers are not just petitions. It's not just asking God for a laundry list of things. At times, it is thanking God for what he has already done, for being so faithful, for being so loving, for being so understanding of our needs every day. We're a family that is supposed to stay connected also to each other. And that communication sometimes can be difficult, you know. Sometimes brothers and sisters fight. They do. And we need to pray because you know what? When we pray, the Holy Spirit connects all of us in the family. And when our words are not even enough, the Spirit is said to pray on our behalf. You know, I, I don't know anything better than that. That when I cannot even find the words to tell God what I'm feeling, the Holy Spirit intercedes on my behalf with groans, that can't even be understood only by God. We are blessed to be a part of the family of God. And, you know, I really believe that prayer is one of the things that connects the body of Christ in an incredible way because people pray for each other in this body. We have prayer lists. And Margie can tell you, we, we get them from everywhere. We get them online. We get them from people that know people. We get them from people that, that heard that we have a praying group. When they people find out that you are a body of believers that follows the DNA that Jesus established of prayer, they want to be a part of that. They want you to pray for them because they want the Father to know what they're going through. We rejoice every time we pray together because we know that God doesn't just hear prayer. He answers prayer. Ah, there's a difference, folks. If you're not praying like God answers prayer, you're praying the wrong way. God answers 
prayer. That's one of the reasons we come to God in prayer. We know He can do far more than what we ask. And sometimes do better than what we ask because we don't know what we're asking for sometimes. Paul goes on to say, we are to live in harmony with one another, not being haughty, but associating with the lowly and not claiming to be wiser than we are. In other words, don't pretend to be better than everybody else for any reason. Education, achievements, money, whatever it is, don't pretend like all of that or any of that makes you better than anybody else. One of the things that is radical in the family of God is that we're all brothers and sisters. There's no half-brothers, half-sisters. There's no step-brothers, step-sisters. There's no, there's no orphans that are, that are lesser than the others. We're all adopted as orphans into the family of God. We're all made children of God by grace. And that's important because it means that we can't treat anybody as lesser than us. We've got to treat them with the same love that we have been treated by God. You know, it's, it's hard to think about the fact that there are Christians that don't get along with each other, but there are. But have you ever met a family where everybody got along? Anybody? No, there's always things that go on in families. And sometimes it's difficult to get along, and I really do believe that some Christians could use one of those get-along shirts. Anybody heard about the get-along shirt? It's like a big shirt and a parent put, get a long shirt and put it on two kids at the same time. And the idea was, I'm going to bring you together because you are family and you have to make it through thick and thin. That's what you do. That's what we do as family. So as we can see, Paul is basically saying, you, you've got to get along. And he says then, contribute to the needs of the saints and extend hospitality to strangers. The words here in Greek or share what you have with others, sharing common with each other. You know, in the family of God, if one has a need, we're supposed to all supply, and we're supposed to get together and find a way to provide. And that's what we try to do, but not just in the family of God. As a family of God, we give a witness to the world by coming together to do things that are even for people that we might never meet. And you know, this is one of the places where I like to brag about the Methodist church. Because one of the things that connectionalism gives us is the ability to do things far greater than any individual church could do. And I think I've mentioned this to you all before some years ago when I came, but I'll, I'll mention it again. We are the only denomination that started a full college in Africa so that people could get education on their home turf and then go back to their communities and bless them. Doctors, nurses, professionals, so that they could go back and then bless their communities. And of course, there's religious education as well, but it's a full college, Africa University. No individual church could have ever aspired to do that. But through the connection of the Methodist church, we were able to pull resources as the family of God to bless our brothers and sisters in Africa with that institution. Paul is saying, we are to do even for the stranger that we might never meet. How many meals did we serve during this last summer of kids we never met? Why? Because God loves them and we love them.
It is God's love that moved us to do that. We're to live in harmony with one another, like I said, and get along with each other. But that's easier said than done again. We, we just don't always agree on everything. But one of the beginnings of, of getting along better with each other is being humble and not pretending like we know everything. Uh, there are just too many Christians that act like they are holding the frying pan by the handle when they're in the frying pan. You know, when they're going through stuff and they're pretending like they got it all figured out. And we all go through stuff. Paul also says that we are not to repay anyone evil for evil. But notice what is good in the sight of all. And if it's possible, as far as it depends on us, to live peaceably with everyone. Now, Paul knew this one very well from his own experience. Why? Because wherever he went to spread the gospel, there were people that were determined not to be at peace with him. There were people that were determined to cause trouble for him. And basically what he's saying is, I understand that there are times when people are going to make it impossible, but as far as you are concerned, don't give them any additional reasons to be at, at war with you. Do what you can to keep the peace with them. It was important for him because he felt that that was part of our testimony, to be at peace with others and to be able to do what was right before them. He didn't want us to repay the evil that they were doing to us. You know, the world teaches that if they hit you, hit them harder. If they do to you, do back to them. You know, they cut you off, speed up and cut them off a little bit further down the road. You know, there are so many times that we are tempted to repay that evil with evil. And Paul knew that it was easy for us to fall into the trap of continuing to return evil for evil, and that that did not lead to a good witness on our behalf. So what are you supposed to do as a Christian when people hurt you or do evil to you? You know, because the other thing that people worry about is, well, I don't want to be a doormat. I don't want everybody cutting up in front of me. I don't want everybody doing things to me and me not do anything back. Paul says, don't repay the evil with evil. Don't avenge yourself. Leave it up to God. Commend them to God. So there's your new assignment for the week. Whenever somebody cuts you off, commend them to God and pray for them. There's a concept, right? How are you loving that other person? You're praying that they don't have an accident up the road. You're not praying they get a ticket. You're praying that they're safe and they get home safely. Because God will judge at the end. You don't have to take vengeance. God will do all that in his own time. God will judge the living and the dead, and that includes you. And you don't want to be the one that was cutting them off. Because you'll have to answer for that too. So if we can't take vengeance, then what can we do? He says we can feed our enemies if they're hungry. We can give them drink if they're thirsty. We can repay their evil with good. And he says, by doing this, you will heap coals on their head. Wait, what? Heap coals on their head. The first two I understand. They're hungry? Give them food. They're thirsty? Give them drink. Heap coals? Burning coals on their head? 
You know, I've read this over and over again, and I've studied it, and I can tell you that commentators do not agree on what this means. There's three basic school of thoughts on this, three different positions, and I want to share them with you because the first thing is Paul's not using his own words. I want to say that up front. He is quoting from Proverbs. He is quoting a proverb, Proverbs 25, 21 through 22. So he's not throwing out there something that an audience of Jewish Christians would not know about because it was already in Proverbs. They would have known that. So we are hearing this completely out of context because we can't relate to it. But I'm going to try my best to share with you these, these expressions because I think it's important. Some say that it is by doing these things, these good things to our enemies, that we bring shame on our enemies who have wronged us. And that the coals represent the burning that causes them to redden with embarrassment. So the idea that we shame them into repentance or change. The problem I have with that take is that evil people often have no shame. They don't even recognize that they're in the wrong. And so to assume that just by doing good, they're going to come to repentance is kind of naive on our part, right? Oftentimes it can happen. God can touch anybody, right? But the reality is most people that are evil are not just going to be changed by us doing a good thing for them. Others say that the coals of fire signify judgment form of them. So we're building up a case against them before God. That somehow we are heaping more evidence of their evil upon their head. Well, I problem with that one too. Why? Because the whole passage is about us showing love even to the enemy. How can building a case against somebody be loving? It's not loving. I would not wish the wrath of God on my worst enemy. That is awful. So that one doesn't make sense to me either. The third one, and the one that I think is closest, is one that is actually culturally relevant to their time. This third interpretation says that most homes in ancient times were kept warm with a burning fire that burned all night and all day in places that went below freezing in Israel. So basically, if you lived in a region that froze over, you know, could experience freezing temperatures, you had to keep the fire going 24-7. Because if the fire went out and somebody in the house fell asleep, they would freeze to death. It literally was the difference between life and death to keep that fire going. Well, every now and then, somebody's fire would go out. They either didn't put enough stuff in it or whatever. Their fire would go out. And they would have to take what was called the fire pan, a brazen, go to their neighbor's house and say, my fire has gone out. Can I have a coal from your fire, a burning coal from your fire to relight my fire? And that neighbor would go in their fire, pull a burning coal, put it on the brazen, and that neighbor would then put that brazen on their head and begin to walk home to relight their fire. 
Only on the way home, a neighbor would see them and would go, come over here a second. I will give you a coal from my fire too to help you light your fire. And as they kept going home, other neighbors would see them and say, you need a coal from my fire to light your fire. And by the time they got home, there was a heap of coals over their head. And those coals became life-giving to that family because when they went back in the home with all those souls, they lit the fire, kept the family safe. When I think about that, I think that's what Paul meant. That when you see your enemy whose house is cold and whose fire is out, it is your duty to take an ember from your fire, to take a burning coal from your fire and help them light their fire. And the catch with this is, if you don't have a fire burning, you have no amber to share. If you're, if you're not ardent in spirit and your own house is warmed by the presence of God, then you have no amber to share with that person whose house is cold. It requires our own home to be on fire so that we can share the Spirit of God with someone else. I think Paul was telling us that there's a lot of people whose fires have gone out and that we need to help them to know the life-giving fire of the Holy Spirit and the presence of God. In every single of these instances that Paul has mentioned, throughout this chapter. Everything that he is inviting us to do is predicated on the love of God that we have already experienced ourselves. But it's also the invitation to not just enjoy the love of God, but to give the love of God away and to light someone's fire. That is the way the family of God and how God's children should always behave. Let us love one another as God has loved us. And if you see somebody's fire is out, grab an ember from your fire. Help them to know the fire of God in their own lives. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this word. I thank you, Lord, because it is so rich and so full of so much, Lord, that we need to think about and ponder in our lives. We thank you, O Lord, for the invitation and the instruction by Paul on what it means to be part of your family. Help us to understand that as children of God, there are expectations that you have of us. Expectations that we will love, O oh Lord, beyond our understanding. Love beyond sometimes even what we think is our capacity. Love beyond what we think is even possible. Heavenly Father, on this day, I just ask that we will not walk by and ignore the houses with no fire. That we will take some embers from the fire that you have burning inside of us. And that we will share them with those houses and that people will come to know that they too can be a part of the family of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The altar is going to be open today. If you need prayer, 
And if you need that fire rekindled, this is the perfect place for it as we worship together.